Last week, we started a series on what a mighty God we serve, and we talked about the infinite God. We talked about him being incomprehensible, about what it meant for him to be infinite. And today, we're going to talk about another characteristic of God. Today, we're going to talk about the eternal God and what that means for us. Now, we talked about God, and we, we talked so much about the things of God, but we want to talk about what it means that God has always existed and always will exist, and what that means for us as Christians. Now, if you're anything like me, you recognize that time is ticking away, right? Time is just ticking away. You remember it from the time you were a child and you were sitting in school, and you would look up and you would view the clock waiting for that three o'clock bell to ring, right? So you could get out of school. You anticipate it. Now that you're older, it's either four or five o'clock because you're getting off of work. You're waiting for the, for the toll to ring. You're waiting to be done. And you think about this. We, we do it with vacations. We are time-gathered and time-sensitive people. We can't wait for our vacations to get here. We'll plan them months and possibly even a year out. And we think to ourselves, man, I can't wait to get to my vacation. We do it with everything that we do. We are encompassed in time. We call up people. We say, hey, you want to do dinner? Yeah, what time? Do you want to meet? We got to get up to an alarm clock so we know we got to go to work or go to school or go to church. We are encapsulated in time, but not God. But not God. So when we think about this, I love the way Max Lucado states it in his book, A Gentle Thunder. And I just had to read it. I didn't want to type it out. I just got it straight from his book. And I love the way he talks about this at the beginning. He says, seated at the great desk... The author opens the large book. It has no words. It has no words because no words exist. No words exist because no words are needed. There are no ears to hear them, no eyes to read them. The author is alone. And so he takes the great pen and begins to write. Like an artist gathers his colors and a woodcarver's tools, the author assembles his words. There are three. Three single words. Out of these three will pour a million thoughts. But on these three words, the story will suspend. He takes his quill and he spells the first, T-I-M-E. Time did not exist until he wrote it. He himself is timeless, but his story would be encased in time. The story would have the first rising of the sun, a first shifting of the sand, a beginning and an end, a final chapter. He knows it before he writes it. Time, a footspan on eternity's trail. You realize time didn't begin until God wrote it out. And he started the clock. And guess what? There is coming a day where time will no longer exist. Can you imagine getting into heaven and not having to wake up to an alarm clock? Could you imagine getting to heaven and not having to worry that you're going to be at work on time or school on time? You'll never be late. For some of you, that'll be a first. You'll never be late again. You're not encapsulated in time once eternity begins and that clock begins to roll. There comes an end to this world and there comes an end to all things except your life. You will live eternally because the eternal one deemed it so. God is amazing when you think about it. And I love what Henry Thiessen said. He said, he is free from all succession of time. He is the cause of all time. Time is, as is commonly understood, duration measured by succession. But God is free from all succession of time. He has always existed. He exists and he always will exist. 
We're going to talk about what that means today. First, we want to look at the first characteristic of God's eternal character, and that one is his self-existence. If you've got your Bibles, Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, you probably know this scripture, at least you've heard this name. This name is amazing, but it declares God's self-existence. Listen to what it says is Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. It says, And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers has sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thou shalt say unto the children of Israel, I am has sent me unto you. You think about what that word means. It's the word Yahweh. All right. Now, the people of Israel wouldn't even declare the name Yahweh. They're afraid to blaspheme his name by using it in an inconsistent way. Yahweh, I am that I am. Here's what you need to understand what that phrase is telling you. It's telling you that God says, I am. I have always been, I always am, and I always will be. I'm in the past, the present, the future. I have always been. I've always existed, and I always will exist. But it not only means that, it means I am your guide, I am your leader, I am your creator, I am your everything. I am your purpose, I am your glory, I am everything you're longing for. If you're looking for an answer, I am. If you're looking for direction, I am. If you're looking for the reason for living, I am. I am everything you need to know, everything that there is, and everything that you'll ever need to know, I am. I've always existed. Man, I love that title because you got to think about what Moses had to be thinking to himself. You know, that word just means I am. There's so much involved in that. Now, you think about that. We use that phrase so flippantly, like I am going to the store today. Or I am going to do this today. But when God declared he was the I am, he was declaring something that was beyond what any man or woman could ever think of. And that is, I've always been. Now I'm going to tell you, that is tough for us to fathom. It's tough for us to understand. And Henry Thiessen says it this way, while man's ground of existence is outside of himself, God's existence is not dependent upon anything outside of himself. As Thomas Aquinas said, he's the first cause himself uncaused. In other words, you think about this. In order for there to be a tree, there had to be a seed. In order for there to be a baby, there had to be parents. In order for there to be a building, an architect had to design it and a contractor had to build it. You see, a lot of people ask the question, well, where did we all come from? Where did it all start from? Where did it all happen? Well, I want you to understand there are actually three choices that man proposes. You ready for it? Here are the three choices that man has proposed to where we all began from. Number one, God. God created everything we see and know. God intricately detailed it. He was the architect and grand designer behind all of it. You were created for a purpose. You were were divinely designed by God. Number two, cosmic dust collided, and by chance, everything happens to be. That's the second choice. That's what they'll teach you in educated schools. But here's how educated they are. If it's considered a theory, it's not A truth. Please understand that. If you teach it as a theory, I'm okay with that. When you teach it as truth, you only prove your foolishness. The third one is more recent, and I like this one. How about you guys? Aliens dropped us off. They're coming back when we evolve into a greater race, and we can put up a fight, and then they're going to wipe us out. So let's worship aliens. No, I'm kidding. Please don't. 
You think about it, those are the three choices that have been proposed by man when they look at the existence of everything that is. It's either a creator or space particles or space aliens. That's where we came from. And I'm here to tell you the only one that makes absolute sense is that God has always been. He has existed. He's the creator. He's the uncreative one who's created all things, divinely designed them for a purpose and a reason. It's God. You say, well, how can you prove it? Well, I'll tell you there are actually four traditional proofs to believing in the existence of God. The first one is called the cosmological argument. I get this from Wayne Grudem and many other great theologians. But he simply says this, considers the fact that every known thing in the universe has a cause. Therefore, its reasons, the universe itself, must also have a cause. And the cause of such a great universe can only be God. In other words, if we take the argument of those three existences of how we came about, you either have to believe that in the beginning there was God, that he's an uncreated creator, or you have to believe that there were dust that just so happened to explode in everything that we see and know, or you have to believe that there were aliens at the very beginning. So which one seems to appeal to the truth? Which one seems to teach us something that makes sense? And that is only God. The only one that makes sense is God. And that's the cosmological argument. Everything has to have a cause. If the vase falls off the pedestal, you know one of your kids knocked it off, right? If the building was built, we have to know that someone built it. If creation exists, we have to know that there is an ultimate creator. That's all there is to it. But not only is there the cosmological argument, then there's the teleological argument. It says it focuses on the evidence of harmony and order and design in the universe and argues that its design gives evidence of an intelligent purpose. Since the universe appears to be designed with a purpose, there must be an intelligent and purposeful God who created it to function that way. In other words, it's the divine architect. In other words, God made you just the way he wanted you. Isn't that amazing? God doesn't make mistakes. If you look at evolution, you have to believe in the idea of chance. Everything happens by chance. It just so happened that you got intelligence. It just so happened it may have bypassed some others, but you got it. And so it's by chance that you look the way you look. It's by chance that those things happen. Everything, the key word in evolution is chance. The key word in creation is purpose. God purposely designed you the way you are. He intricately detailed the places of your life. He intricately detailed who you are. When I look at that, I'm amazed that anybody can believe. And let's be honest, if you believe you came from monkeys, go on down to Nashville Zoo and go visit your uncle. (laughs) But here's one thing evolution has never been able to solve, and that's this simple. If something evolves, why are they still here? They should not be here. They, they go missing because the evolution calls the lesser thing to pass on. If man is the ultimate part of that evolution, then all other subspecies should be dead. Why? Because it's not true. It's never been proven, and it's only a theory. We're divinely design. Then there's the ontological argument. It begins with the idea of God who is defined as the being greater than which nothing can be imagined. It then argues that the characteristic of existence must belong to such a being since it is greater to exist than not to exist. You ever wondered why Genesis 1-1 begins with this simple statement? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It doesn't tell you where God came from. You want to know why? Because we couldn't fathom or understand that God has no beginning. He's just always been. 
He existed before time ever started. And it begins with that. And here's the truth of the matter. Can I tell you something? Scripture makes it very clear that there really are no atheists, that everybody believes in God. Do you know that? Romans chapter 1 teaches this truth. In Romans chapter 1, and we'll begin in verse 19. And there it says this, Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. God says nobody goes out in creation and looks out at creation and goes, hmm, dust particles. They just don't do it. Every child that goes out there knows that something, someone had to create everything that they know and see. The problem is, is we get a little bit wiser in our own minds. And that's what scripture says. It goes on verse 21. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. In fact, the word actually says they suppressed the truth. They know that God is real, but they suppressed the truth. You know that the greatest atheists in the world were former Christians. They at one time believed in God. They got hurt in church. And after they got hurt in church, they went out and they blamed God for their hurt. Can I tell you something? If you get hurt in church, it is man's fault, not God's fault. Do not blame God when man acts foolish. Do not blame God when a man or woman hurts you. It is not God's fault. It is the fallibility of man and their sinfulness, not God. But it says this, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God and the image made like incorruptible man into birds, four-footed beasts and creeping things. The truth of the matter is, is God has always existed and every man from the moment they're born knows that there is a creator. But the fourth one is the moral argument. It begins from man's sense of right and wrong and of need for justice to be done and argues that there must be a source of right and wrong and justice. That's actually found in Romans chapter 2. God has given every one of us in here a conscience. You realize you didn't wake up one day and realize that it was wrong to steal. God had already put that in your heart. You didn't realize one day all of a sudden it was wrong to murder. God put that in your heart. God gave us a moral compass, a conscience that deals with us and shows us what's right and wrong. We know when we tell our parents no from the time we're little that that was a bad mistake. We have a conscience. We understand God has given us a moral guidance. And that moral guidance teaches us that God has always existed and always will exist. He's the self-existing one. The second characteristic we're going to look at is he's eternality. He is eternal. Look at me in Psalm chapter 90. I love this. Love this Psalm. Psalm 90. It's the one that Moses wrote. Many people don't realize Moses wrote a psalm. Psalm chapter 90, verses 1 and 2. It says, Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting thou art God. Do you realize we can understand everlasting being existing forever? Where we as humans have a hard time understanding is that everlasting had no beginning. Because we see everything as having a beginning, but God does not. God was the beginning of all things, even the creation of time. He's everlasting, from everlasting to everlasting. He's known as the everlasting God. Now, what blows our mind is that God created time, but he's not encapsulated in time. 2 Peter 3, 8 tells us a verse, and many people have misinterpreted this. It says, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as a day unto the Lord. 
You don't know why he says that? It's because God's not on your clock. He's on his own. God doesn't have to answer your prayer when you think it needs to be answered. He has the perfect timing when he's going to answer your prayer. God knows what he's doing even in the midst of time. He's designed us to live within time. And God is in control of that. Now, I love his name in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 8 says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. You know, he declares that again in chapter 21 and in chapter 22. But when he declares it in chapter 22, he says it this way. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. In other words, what he's saying, the Alpha and the Omega, I'm the beginning of the Greek alphabet, the end of the Greek alphabet. In other words, you can't go before me and you can't go after me. I've always been. I'm the beginning of time. Now, I want to show you a little bit of an illustration. Now, I'm sure I'll get lost in the camera here. But I want to show you a little illustration to maybe help you out with this a little bit. I'm not disappearing, I promise. I'm going to finish. But I want to show you time. This right here is time. I want you to see that time goes on for a very, very, very long time. But we exist within time. And we see if you go to the other door where I came from, you'll notice you can't see the beginning of the rope. And now I'm taking this rope to where you can't see the end of it. And there's a reason for it. Because even though we have time, we can't see the beginning and we can't see the end. But we live within this time frame. God has always existed, showing us from the beginning. God will always exist, showing us from the end. But here's the problem. That little blue tape, that's our lives in the span of time. Do you see how short it is? Do you see how small your existence is in the span of eternity? Your livelihood, this is your life, your hopes, your dreams, everything that you do in life. This is it on the span of time that has gone on for thousands of years before us and will go on possibly thousands of years beyond us. I know many of you are expecting Jesus to return and he can return at any time. Please understand, he could come back at any time. He could also come back in 10,000 more years. That's his choice. He's in control of time, not us. He has a timetable, but here's the thing. Even if he returns, if you'll notice, time goes all the way out and keeps going. Why? Because eternity never ends. But I want you to see just how small your life is. I want you to recognize just how small it is. Why? Because we only have so much time to redeem the time, as the Bible says. We only have so much time. Yes, we are going to live on forever. We're going to live on forever in heaven. But on earth, this is the span of time we have to live for the Lord. It's the span of time we have to do what God has called us to do. It's not a lot of time. If we're given 70 years, praise God. That's what the Bible declares, 70 in two years. But here's the thing, nobody's guaranteed that. Because I've done a funeral for a one-month-old baby all the way up to a lady in her late 90s. Time is ticking away. But when it comes to God, he is in existence of all time. He has always been. Man, I love this because the many names that are declared of God and many characteristics. In Isaiah 57 and verse 15, Isaiah says this. He says, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity. He inhabiteth eternity. 1 Timothy 6 tells us he is the immortal one. In the book of Psalm 102 and verse 27, 
It declares in Scripture there, 102 verse 27, But thou art the same, and thy years shall have no end. You say, Brother John, well, what does that mean for me? If God has always existed, and God will always exist, and he's eternal, what does that mean for me? Here's what you need to know and understand. Only one who is eternal can offer you eternal life. Only one that already has it can offer to you. If God couldn't exist forever, then eternal life is a joke. If God exists forever, then what he has, he can provide for you and for me. He's the only one who can provide eternal life. Let me tell you something. He is no man-made God. Now, there are plenty of man-made gods out in the world. You realize that. Plenty of man-made gods out there that you can worship. But let me tell you something. God has always existed and always will exist. And because of that, he can offer you eternal life. Other religions can't offer you that. They can't guarantee you heaven. They can't guarantee you salvation. They can't promise you eternity. All they can promise is the hope of getting there. Let me tell you something. When I hear Christians say, well, I hope. Let me tell you something. I don't hope. I know. I don't hope about eternal life. I know I have eternal life. I don't hope to live forever. I know I will live forever. Why? Because the one who promised it lives forever, and he can cause me to live forever as well. He is eternal. And lastly, we're going to look at his self-sufficiency. Look with me in the book of Acts chapter 17. We're going to look at one more passage. Acts 17, verses 24 and 25. Paul is speaking there, and he actually uses a Greek philosopher. In Acts 17, verses 24 and 25, Paul says this, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worship with men's hands as though he needed anything seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. What does it mean that God is self-sufficient? It means we don't add or take away from God. You realize that? Some people say, well, God created us because he needed people to worship him. No, he didn't. Let me tell you something. In the beginning, there was perfect harmony. There was perfect unity. There was perfect peace. And that was between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It was perfect. And then God created. And God created all things to be good. It says in the beginning, when he created, after each day, he said, and it was good. All things were good. Why? Because sin was not in the world at that time. But one person chose to sin, brought sin into the world, and has exposed it to all of us. And because of that, our sinfulness has caused the decay and the problems of this world. God is not any lesser because of those things happening. He doesn't become less because we don't worship him. I love, again, what A.W. Tozer says. He says this, Were all human beings suddenly to become blind, still the sun would shine by day and the stars by night. For these owe nothing to the millions who benefit from their light. So were every man on earth to become atheist, it would not affect God in any way. He is what he is in himself without regard to any other. To believe in him adds nothing to his perfections. To doubt him takes nothing away. Now, I'm going to tell you that's a hard concept to understand because a lot of people say, well, wait a minute, you're saying God doesn't need me. That's exactly right. He doesn't need you. But here's the beauty of it. He wants you. <laughs> you realize that, that makes you more purposeful, right? Not that he needs you, 
but he wants you. He could live without you, but he doesn't want to. He could have just said, it's over. I'm done with them. They've sinned. They failed. I'm, I'm done. I erase them. I'm moving them on. He could have done that from the beginning. In fact, he could have said, you know what? Well, I'll just let them live out their existence and then I'll just send them all to hell because that's what they all deserve because of their sinfulness. I could do that. Why? Because he's God. He doesn't need us. But instead of being like that, you know what God said? God said, I don't need them, but I want them. So I'm going to send my son to die on the cross for their sins so that they can have eternity with me. It's their choice. They can choose to live with me forever or they can choose to live without me forever. I'll give them heaven or hell, whatever they want. I'll give it to them because they choose it of their own purposes. Because I've already shown them that I exist. I've already shown them what I've done for them. I've already shown them an incredible love. I've already given them everything they need. If they choose to walk away, that's on them. You see, God doesn't need us, but he wants us. And let me tell you something. God doesn't need the things we have. The opportunity that we have to give back to him, that's a blessing to us. I love the way Frank prayed about that this morning. Man, we're giving back to you what you've given to us. We're, we're, everything we have is borrowed. You realize that, right? Everything we have is borrowed. It's all God's. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, Job 41, 11, Who hath prevented me that I should repay him? Whatsoever is under the whole heaven is mine. God owns it all. In fact, not only does Job declare that, but also in the book of Psalms, Psalm 50, verses 10 to 12, it says this, For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the fowls of the mountains, and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell thee, for the world is mine and the fullness thereof. Matt Redman, in one of his songs, declares it this way. We have nothing to give that didn't first come from your hands. We have nothing to offer you which you did not provide. Every good, perfect gift comes from your kind and gracious heart. And all we do is give back to you what always has been yours. You say, well, what does all this mean? That God has always existed? What does it mean that God doesn't need us? It simply shows the vastness of God's love for you and me. He could absolutely do without us, but he doesn't want to. He could absolutely have judged us and condemned us, but he chose not to. He will condemn those who choose to refuse the gift of his precious son, though. Man, he offers to us the beauty of a relationship with him. The Bible makes it very clear that in Ecclesiastes, he's put eternity in our hearts. To be honest with you, every one of us does everything we can to escape death, don't we? Man, if we go into the hospital, we want them to heal us. We want them to help us. We have eternity that rests in our hearts. Every person fears in some way death. But God offers to us that death is the gateway into eternity. It's a new beginning. Again, in Psalm chapter 90 and verse... 12, Moses says this, So teach us to number our days, that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. So what does this mean for us today? Who, who is this God and what does it mean for us? He's eternal. He's always existed. He always will exist. He has eternity in his heart. He gives eternity into your heart. You, here's the thing. You, every one of us in here, will live forever. It's just a matter of your location and where you'll be. Now, a lot of people try to teach that 
Hell's not real, but I'm here to tell you hell's a real place. And hell is an eternal place. And here's the thing. If you don't want to live for God here, why would you want to live for Him for eternity? But He offers to you the same promise He's offered to me and to others that are in here. And He offers it to you that if you don't know Him, He wants to know you. He wants you to understand what He's done for you. That He died on the cross for your sins. He paid your debt. A debt you could not pay. He paid for you so that you might have eternal life. Only one who is eternal can offer you eternal life. And it's not that God needs you, but he does want you. I promise you there is so much love in that statement. So much love in that statement. Let's be honest. Every one of us in here do not need children, did we? We chose to have kids. Why did we choose them? Because we wanted them. And we understand from Scripture they're a blessing. We wanted them. We didn't need them. We wanted them. God doesn't need us. And out of His gracious and kind love, He wants us. And He offers to you the most precious gift of all, His Son, to take your place so that you might have eternal life. That's the eternal God we serve.